Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Monica, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And today is Friday, the 13th day of December 2012. And today we are reading from the big book. We are in the doctor's opinion, and we are on page XXVII. And we're going to start with the very last line on this page. And today's readers are the 12 Steps, Nancy T, 12 Traditions, Susie K, and then Sharon, Marita, Kim, and Katie. And the share code for yesterday, Thursday, the 12th of December, is 5621, 5621. OA Preamble, Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. And there's noise on the line, if everyone could please mute. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. And I will now ask Nancy Kay to please read the 12 steps. Good morning, Monica. Good morning, everybody. This is Nancy. I'm a compulsive reader from Lewiston, Idaho. The 12 steps. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over the food that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrong. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked Him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And continued to take personal inventory and, whenever, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Nancy T. I will now ask Susie Kay to read the 12 traditions. Good morning. This is Susie Kay from Portland, Maine. I'm a recovered compulsive reader, and these are the 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. 
personal recovery depends upon OA unity too. For a group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, and the anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, Nancy T. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinent requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinent requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. And once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, Everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. And today we are resuming our study of the big book. We are in the chapter, The Doctor's Opinion, and we are on page XXVII. And we're starting with the very last sentence on the bottom of the page, Of course, an alcoholic ought. And I will ask... Sharon, to begin reading, and I'm sorry, I called you Nancy T. and Susie K. Thank you for reading the 12 Traditions. And Sharon, would you please start reading? Yes, thank you. Good morning to you, and thank you for your service. Good morning to all on the line. This is Sharon, and I am a compulsive overeater, and I am recovered. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from the physical craving for alcohol, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. I'm just going to stop there because that's, that's actually a 
something that I think we need to really delve into. Because as compulsive overeaters, oftentimes there's there's been this question of whether you can work the steps and get recovered or whether you need to then work the steps. And in our meeting, we often talk about step zero being putting the food down. The first step is to to just put the food down. Stop eating those binge foods. Stop eating uh, outside of your meals. What we do, what I've been doing, is I write out what I'm going to eat. First of all, I have a food plan. And I have a very definite food plan. And that was the very first thing that was given to me when I got my recovery 12 years ago. I was... I was given a food plan and not one that I had made up in my head because, you know, I know everything, but I was given a food plan and it was approved by my nutritionist and that's what I ate every day. And I write down what I'm going to eat before I eat it. I don't eat anything that I haven't. And, and for me, I work with a sponsor, I I write it down, call it in, and I eat only what I have committed so that I can get out of the food and on with recovery, on with my life. And for me, I get obsessive about food. I get obsessive about what I've eaten and what I haven't eaten. And when I realize in, I don't have to obsess, it doesn't, that's, there's no point in thinking about food because there's I've surrendered that I've submitted that I've I don't have control of that and so I don't obsess about food I don't think about food but that's the first step for me because as long as I had the option of what I was going to eat as long as I had choices with my food other than what I wrote down, there's nothing that could get through to me. That became of tantamount importance to me, was thinking about food. And nothing else could get into my thought process. Nothing else could get into my heart, except that food was always dominant. Food was my master. But something happened, step zero for me, was getting out of the food, was was giving up control and saying, I don't have the control of my food. I don't have any option when it comes to food except what I am told, which is what I was told was to write it down, call it in, and if you, for me, now this is, everyone is a little different, but for me, I call it in and if I have any changes, I call that into my sponsor because for me, because I am so far down the line, I am so critical. My, my disease was killing me. I was my, when I, when I started this recovery and when I became willing to do whatever I was told, my kidneys were in failure. I was scheduled to go to a necrologist, a kidney doctor. 
I had 14 pounds of water weight because my, my uh, blood vessels couldn't hold on to water. It was, they were leaching fluid. My ankles, my thighs, were, my thighs were just like big bubbles. And I, I remember sitting down at the meeting and I could just see one mount, my lap, you know, where my thighs were, were just massive because of the fluid retention because my kidneys weren't working and uh, properly. And I was just, but the physical pain and agony that I was in, the numbers of doctors that I was having to see was nothing compared to the mental ag- anguish that I suffered day in and day out. And I had great responsibilities. I had an eight-month-old child, two-year-old child, and yet I couldn't stop eating. So I realized that I had no choice. I needed help beyond uh, myself. And, and, of course, I needed great medical help. And, and you couldn't say, Sharon, don't go to the doctors, don't take that medicine. That, is not, that was not an option. I had to be under physician's care, physical um, doctor, medical care, while I was in the early days of my recovery. But I had to surrender to this program. To my, and I treated my food plan as a medical plan because I was dying and I needed great, great help. And so that is what I've had to do. Before I could even take step one, I had to put the food down. And with, I, with that, I passed. Thank you, Sharon. And would anyone like to comment on this paragraph? Laura? Melanie? KG from Boston. I heard Laura, Melanie, and KDG. Okay, Laura, go ahead. Thank, thank you. Good morning, everyone. This is Laura W., recovered in South Jersey. I just wanted to um, mention, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. And what did they tell us in the page right before us? The first 100, right on page XXVI, right at the bottom, what we read yesterday, I believe, or a couple of days ago, it is imperative. Imperative means crucial, that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached and has then a better chance of understanding. And Dr. Silkworth tells us again right here that this might require a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. So what is maximum benefit? I mean, Dr. Silkworth wants the alcoholic to have every chance to recover. I mean, he, he wants this to work. And, um, and the, the, he's telling us that the alcohol, the substance, must be put down before we can work the steps. It doesn't mean we can't start... Um, the process. It doesn't mean we have to just sit back there and say, okay, I'll put it down tomorrow. I'll put it down next week. We can put it down today. And, um, you know, it reminds me of uh, page five of uh, page um, eight of Bill's story when he says, you know, what is step one? Well, he says, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in the bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all direction. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. There's his step one right there. Um, you know, and the more we fight that quicksand, the more we, we struggle to get out, the, the deeper we fall. So we need, you know, sometimes a definite hospital procedure or uh, professional help is necessary. Uh, other times, you know, this is about establishing a relationship with a higher power. I can't establish a relationship. I can't find God when I'm in the food. I mean, I can speak from experience. It's just not possible because I'm serving. The only thing I'm serving is food and my disease. So that's what, what this struck out to me, you know, struck, stood out to me today. And um, I'm so grateful to be here. I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. 
Melanie, go ahead. Hi, thanks, Monica. This is Melanie, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Oregon. And when I read this, it reminds me again, and they've written it again, um, that it is a twofold illness. We need to get it out of the body and the mind. It's a physical part of it, out, even literally out of reaching it out of the brain. And it also reminds me that um, all of the effort and the heart and the love that Dr. Silkworth put into his research, his treatment of alcoholics, his success rate was 2%, and it changed when the psychological aspect was entered into, the spiritual aspect was entered into with Bill. And so he's saying this again. And when I look at what he could possibly be saying in a picture in my mind, I am very clear about what uh, an intoxicated alcoholic looks like and behaves like. And I'm very, very clear about how they're very well convinced that they can operate anything. My, in my case, it was a car. They could operate a car down a highway at 3.0 level intoxication. And they were convinced. And first it was, no alcohol. how many beers? How, many, how much alcohol have you had? Well, I haven't had any, sir. Haven't had any, sir. Well, well, maybe two beers two beers, and then they blow, right? They blow this 3.0 kind of thing. And that is something I could never, ever, ever say about me. And I'll tell you time and time again now that I've been through these steps, it took a process of detoxification in my body. I had no idea the cleaning out process once all these binge foods were taken away and out of my body and I got down to clean, pure food as close to the ground and the hoof as I could get what my body went through, and my mind, even from that level. And that was just getting into the steps. And I speak to people today, and they're so clear about what they need. They're so clear about who they don't want. They're so clear about what the steps are and what they are for them, and they will fight it, and they'll get off the phone with me, and they'll go back into the food because they don't agree with the suggestion that I might have about doing it differently while they're while they're explaining to me in the food how much better it is and why they know what they need from themselves. This is a clear model of that. The physical aspect includes the brain, includes the saturation of the brain, and they have said it again in a couple of pages how critically clear important it is. And that in this particular case, Dr. Silkworth is saying that it's so bad in the physical aspect of it that we need to go to a hospital to get that kind of support because it could be that dangerous as well to get detoxified from this kind of disease piece that we have ingested. And with that, I've got. Thanks, Monica. Thanks, Melanie. Katie, go ahead, Katie. Good morning, Monica. This is Bella. Can I share? Bella, Katie is ahead of you, please. And then, and then, uh, and then you may. Okay. Okay. Good. Thank you. Katie G, are you there? Yeah, Monica, sorry. Can you hear me? I can. Sorry about that. Good morning. I was talking. Katie G from Boston, Mass., and uh, grateful to be here recovered. And um, a couple of things I just wanted to point out for me, you know, I definitely required a a hospitalization. I got to a point where um, I was not able to work. Uh, I couldn't show up to work without binging my brains out. And uh, I actually begged to be sent to a hospital because I couldn't take care of myself anymore. I had no idea what to do. And, um, you know, it reminds me, somebody said to me once, food is my drug of no choice, right? Like when I am putting, when I put that food or the food behaviors, because it's not just for me um, and me personally, as somebody else talked about, there are 
are certain behaviors that I need to keep out of out of my life. In my adult life, I've been 228 and I've been 110 pounds. So there are, you know, anorexic obsessive tendencies that can come up for me. And I had to clean my life out of all of that. And I and I was hospitalized and I had to get food to be neutral. You know, like I didn't know how to not have food. Like I spent my whole life thinking food was going to solve it, right? Like, and it wasn't even food itself. It was that sense of food, that sense of, okay, this horrible thing is happening in my life now. My solution is going to be later at 4 o'clock. I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm going to buy this food and then I'm going to be okay. And that made me feel like I was okay. You know, so it was when I went to the hospital and I had the detox, um, and I had to detox for many different substances, both food and non-food food items, and ways that I was making food sexy and exciting and the best thing that could ever happen to me because it was going to somehow solve my life. And I also, you know, um, I felt like somebody had taken off my skin and I was playing bumper cars because I didn't know how to live without food and this idea that being thin or being a certain weight or um, having a certain food or not having a certain food was going to fix me, was going to heal me, right? And what are we taught? No human power. So I am definitely an advocate of, um, of hospitalization and whatever it takes to get clean, clear, and neutral with the food because we got to eat and there are ways to do it in a way that's not it uh, doesn't induce drug addiction and um, that sense of even comfort and excitement and idea that the only exciting thing that's happening to me is food and that food is going to fix it. And thank you, God, to know today I have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind, and most significantly, I have a powerful solution. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Katie. Bella, go ahead. Good morning. My name is Bella, and I am a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Monica, for leading this meeting, and thank you very much, everybody that is on the line. I love this paragraph because it reminds me that the the beginning of uh, the solution and the beginning of the hope. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving. Yes, of course, in the beginning, in before I was in the program, of course, I knew that I am the problem. I don't have the willpower. I cannot control the food. I don't want to lose weight. I don't, and I can't, and I don't know. And I am a failure because I am overweight because of me. And now the same, uh, the same word. Of course, an alcoholic art. And now in the program, thank God, thank God, I know that to be, to be recovered, I need to learn to accept myself and to respect myself. And yes, of course, yes, I want to let God into my life, but I need to be uh, respectful. I have to know that I have my part. What can I do? What is my part? My part is my willpower to do the best I can one day at a time. And yes, this is my responsibility to put the food down, to put the the poisoning food for me away. Yes, this I can do. 
I can do it with the help of God. And wow, it's a miracle that, yes, I got back my, the respectful, the trustful. It's such a wonderful feeling that, yes, God trusts me. He believes in me. He knows that I can do it. I can do, I can put the food down. I can be willing to put the food down. And then the rest, God will do. God has so many things and so many good things to give me. I have to be willing to open the door. You know, God cannot come to my life if my door is closed. I have to open the door. And the opening of the door is to put the food down. And this is the hope. This is the beginning of the solution. I can do it. I can open the door. I am willing to put down the food. Thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Bella. And this is Monica, and I'd like to jump in here for a moment. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. So Dr. Silkworth is saying here, and why do we have this physical craving for liquor going on? It's because we have an allergy to liquor. We have an allergy to our, our um, alcoholic foods. And when we ingest an alcoholic food, it sets off this physical craving. And that craving is so powerful, and Dr. Silkworth is going to explain this in the next couple of pages, that that's the only thing that's in our brain, more, more, more. I want more. And we can't think of anything else. There's no thinking. There's just this craving for more. And so, yeah, you know, how can anything else come into my brain if that's all I've got going on, if that's all I can think about? So... I have to I have to identify my alcoholic foods and yes they have to be put down. And he says here that this often requires a definite hospital procedure and I was instructed by my my sponsor to remember this that when I am sponsoring somebody to remember that some people may need some extra help. They may need um uh, a hospitalization. They may need extra help of therapy. And to remember that and keep that in the back of my mind. And let's move on to the next paragraph. And Marita, would you read, please? Good morning, Vision for You. Good morning, Monica. This is Marita. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Virginia. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These alcoholic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once, having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once, having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Okay, so he is talking about this allergy idea again. This is this is this is the amazing information that Dr. Silkworth was able to understand from all of the um, 
from all of the work that he'd done with all of these people over time and that he was able to give to Bill and have Bill, you know, package in this big book for all the rest of us. Um, so in, this, this used to confuse me a lot, the idea of an allergy, um, the idea of the phenomenon of craving, because I, I always thought of, my, uh, of, the, of the idea of craving as the obsession in my mind, that I was always thinking about the food, even when it was down, especially when it was down, I was always fighting against this urge to uh, pick it back up. The thoughts would come into my mind. I would get a flash of a brownie in my mind, or I would have this idea of myself licking the icing off of a cupcake. I mean, they would just show up in my brain. I would have the smell of my mom's cookies from when I was a child. Um, so those kinds of that kind of craving is not the kind of craving that he's talking about here. This phenomenon of craving based on the allergy of our body has to do with what happens to me when I take the food in. It's like a chemical reaction when my body, when I, when I elect, when I finally give in to the obsession of the mind and take in that first bite, that one bite that I'm deciding that's all I'm ever going to eat, that's all I really need, 30 calories, I'll take this one bite, that's when the bomb goes off. Once the food is in there, I've got this chemical reaction, is all I can think of it as, that, in, that creates the, the phenomenon of craving that he's talking about here that makes my body insist in a very compulsive an overriding way that I have more of the same. And I can't fight it at that point. I can't put it down. I can't stop it. I'm, I'm, I'm crazed for more. And, um, and, it, and because it's happening to me in a physiological way, I'm lost. I am so stuck. I am so powerless. So not to put it in there to begin with becomes massively important to me. I have to understand my binge foods are rat poison, and I just cannot afford to ingest them. It would be like drink and Drano for me. I just can't, I just can't go there. And uh, uh, thanks very much for letting me share. I pass. Thank you, Marita. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? All right. I heard I heard Larry and that was about it. Okay. Sharon. Leah. Sharon. Sharon. Leah. Okay, let's start with that. Larry, Sharon, and Leah. Go ahead, Larry. <laughs> Thanks so much, uh, Larry, compulsive reader from Chicago. So let me keep it real brief. Um a lot of people want to jump on the line, which I think is great. A lot of good, a lot of good teaching here. Um, you know, tying this back to um, to the to the previous paragraph as well. You know, the allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. That's indeed the case for me. I am a compulsive overeater. I know this about myself. Um, I've tried <clears throat> many times to go out and do some more research. You know, perhaps convinced that maybe I'm just not quite this way. And uh, my research, um, you know, proved to be very valuable to me. 
um, because I began to understand that, no, I indeed have this allergy and I'm powerless. What I do want to tie it back to the previous paragraph is about this notion of putting down the substance. I would agree. Okay, no question. You know, before before these steps, this spiritual journey, you know, this 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 um, this moral psychology can be of maximum benefit. It, it could be, you know, some benefit. It certainly was to me. But before it could be of maximum benefit, I had to uh, to put the food down. Um, however. One thing um, that I will say that the, the sponsor who's had many, many, many years of spiritual, emotional, physical, um, you know, progress in this program <clears throat> had told me that I, that I think helped me a, along the way was that, you know, you're going to have a period of time of uncomfortability, if that's the word, uncomfortability. Because I was under the premise that I, I bought into the fact that I was powerless, that I knew rationally I had to put the substance down. You know, an alcoholic doesn't just, uh, you know, kind of have a little bit of alcohol here and there and just kind of ease into it and then, you know, no, that's not for a true alcoholic. Uh, not, not a true alcoholic mind like mine. But with that, there may be someone on the line that just says, wait a minute, as I did, you're telling me I'm powerless. I got to take action, but I, I just can't. And what I was saying was, look, I, w- I went through a period of time of with- withdrawal. An alcoholic would go through the same thing, physical withdrawal. A heroin addict, same thing. You know, I went through a period of time of tremendous uncomfortability. Some people maybe didn't have that uncomfortability as long as I did, but I know that Bill had that. Dr. Bob had that. There's been many others that, uh, that that had a difficult time with that period of withdrawal, as as this you know it works th- through your system, and that's a, that's part of the physical allergy, you know. So, um, uh, but I had to test that for a good long while. But um, at a certain point, I realized who I was, and I realized that for me, the only solution would be this spiritual transformation, this personality shift. And once I received that. Boy, there were things that I learned about myself that I never knew. So with that, I'll pass. Thanks so much. Thank you, Larry. Sharon, your turn. Star one to unmute, Sharon. Okay, let's move on to Leah. Leah, go ahead. Thank you so much, Monica, for your service. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah. And I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Such important information. I'm so grateful that someone taught it to me. We believe that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That means I have an abnormal reaction to certain substances. And that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperature drinker. I mean, obviously, we're reading uh, the second letter by uh, Dr. William Silkworth, who discovered after his work with thousands and thousands of alcoholics that um, when the alcoholic took even a little bit of alcohol into his system, the switch on inside of his body went on, and the only thing the alcoholic wanted to do was drink more alcohol. And, he, of course, he would continue to drink and drink, and, of course, he would get drunk. And he had no, con- no choice at that point but to continue to drink. And it was taught to me 
to review my eating history. And in reviewing my eating history, I could identify certain substances that had that same effect on me ever since I was a little kid. You know, and it wasn't just about taste sensation. When I ate certain foods, my body was triggered. It went on high alert, and I would eat more and more and more of that food. I was biologically mandated that way. It, my body created a demand for more of that substance. That is my reality. It goes on to say these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And I had to do years, decades of research and development and test that out to finally discover this is how I am wired. This is a reality for me. Just like I have blue eyes and I will have blue eyes on my birthday and I will have blue eyes on holidays and I will have blue eyes on vacations. And I will have blue eyes when I get a job promotion or other such occasions. I am allergic to these substances on my birthday, on holidays, on vacations. My disease is always a part. That part of me is always within me. I am biologically mandated that way. So I had to come to understand and really, really wrap my brain around the fact and my heart around the fact that I can never safely use those substances in any form at all. So part of what we have to do in step one is understand what those substances are so that we can abstain from them. You know, maybe food, specific foods, maybe combinations of ingredients or eating behaviors that once we start, we cannot stop. And I had to identify what those were, and I had to abstain from that. Now, obviously, that's not the greater aspect of my disease, but that is imperative. That is uh, a place where I needed to begin. Such important information, you know, that um, I'm grateful to that we teach today. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. And Sharon, are you there? To... Sarah, compulsive overeater. Can I share? Um, Monica, what... can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you, Sharon. Just oh, a second. Okay. Just you. a second, Sharon. And who okay. was it just spoke up? I did not catch your name. Sarah. Sarah? Yeah. Okay. Sharon and then Sarah. Go ahead, Sharon. Oh, thank, thank you, Monica. I don't know what happened, but anyway, I had to get off the phone and call back in. But uh, thank you, thank you. This is Sharon H. in Colorado, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. And I have this paragraph uh, highlighted, underlined, starred all around it because this is uh, part of the paragraph that just hit home to me a year ago last July when I began listening to this meeting because this is what I had missed completely. And um, these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. And that phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. And that's exactly where I was a year ago last July when I began listening to this. And so I just can't stress enough, too, that we will never, ever win that game of uh, 
trying to think that somehow, some way, someday, I will be able to be what I wanted to be, and that was to be able to be neutral with these food substances that my body absolutely cannot tolerate. I mean, that's just a fact, and so it's mandatory that I accept that. I, I thought of the word mandatory because when I was working, we had a lot of mandatory meetings we had to attend, and that meant you better be there. You can't say, well, I don't think I want to go, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got too much work to do. I can't go to that mandatory meeting. Mandatory meant you got to be there, and that's the way I look at this today. I've got to be here. I've got to be in this book. By God's grace, I've gone through the steps, um, through the ninth step, and now am uh, able to uh, help other suffering people out there on the line that struggled for years like I did because I did not accept the imperative nature and mandatory must that this book points out to me. I missed this paragraph completely. So I stayed stuck in that miserable, miserable place of being um, just saturated with these foods that my body would not tolerate, and then I'd try to get off of them, and then I would be so miserable, restless, irritable, and discontent, and then that would lead me back to the lie over and over again that I just had to pick up, and I knew this time I'd be able to just have a little bit. And that is the lie that I lived in, and it is a miserable place to be. And once I accepted that and began to live in harmony with this truth and do the work that was required of me to do, it's just like night and day. And I'm so grateful to this meeting, to these uh, recovered people on the line that put themselves on the line every single day to share this message of hope and recovery. And with that, I pass. And I encourage everyone out on the line to... Just keep listening until this truth just saturates into the core of your being. Thank you, Monica, and I pass. Thank you, Sharon. And Sarah, go ahead. Hi, this is Sarah, recovering compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Um, this paragraph really speaks to me. Before I came to program over 10 years ago, I tried to figure out why I kept eating, why I couldn't stop. And it's so simple. It's an allergy. Like my son has allergies. He's allergic to mold. He's allergic to pollen. I don't blame him. It has nothing to do with him. It's, it's just simple. If he takes his allergy medicine and he stays away from what he's allergic to, he'll be fine. It is so wonderful how it just simplifies it in this one paragraph. What I need to do is abstain from my food and live a spiritual life. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple. It's clear out. It's exactly what I need. And it's so wonderful. It gave me such self-esteem to realize it's not my fault. I didn't do anything to cause it. It just, this is how I was created, like was shared. Uh, I am who I am. And it makes me grateful also that there are thousands and millions of people out there that have the same thing. And if they're told it, they would say, no, not really, the denial. I'm so grateful to have come to the rooms, not knowing what it is, hearing free diet, okay, let me try this one, hearing that and feeling it and knowing it in my heart. And, and it's not just believing it because for me it's a real truth. And it's just so 
I'm just so grateful not to be in denial and say, no, no, really, I can handle this. I can't. I cannot handle it. Not on day one of being abstinent, not on day, you know, year 10. I cannot handle it. And it's such a freedom for me. Okay. I can't. That means there's no way to even try. That means I have to follow the directions of this book. I have to give my food to my sponsor. I have to live a spiritual life. And the freedom that I get from it and the simplification of exactly what to do and everything in my life is just something I am so, so grateful for. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And who else would like to share on this paragraph? Barbara. Katie G. Barbara. Katie G. And I heard another person. Paula? Yeah, that would be Paula at the end of the line. Okie dokie. Okay, Barbara, Katie G. and Paula. Barbara, go ahead. Thank you. This is Barbara, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. I'm really taken um, by the word allergy and spending a lot of time looking at my history with my own acceptance of allergy. I mean, allergy is something that, as has been said, you know, one reacts to uh, maybe shellfish, which is a, a true chemical allergy I have and I have experienced mistakenly ingested it, ended up in emergency rooms. I've experienced, um, you know, month-long reactions, mistakenly ingesting it. And I used to have people say to me, but how can you not have shellfish? How can you live without shellfish? Why don't you eat it and then go to the hospital and deal with the reaction? Well, you know, that got me thinking once I really, thank you God, comprehended being allergic to food and, and eating behaviors, that I was repeating the insanity of ingesting it and then dealing with the horrible allergic reactions. And within the fellowships, people were wrapping their minds around the idea of allergy. They'd say, well, when people say to me when I tell them I'm allergic, that's why I don't eat that, they say, do you break out? They'd say, yes, I break out in fat. I mean, I think it's a concept that takes time. Uh, My experience is that it takes time to really get the full impact and realization and acceptance of it. And once it's accepted, oh, it's just so clear, that allergy of the body, it truly is. Now, my own experience in my evolution of this accepting of the allergy makes me see that I'm also allergic and addicted to the act of overeating anything. In addition to that early going through emotional attachments, physical responses to food, certain foods, all that, it's the simple act of anything, seemingly innocent, anything, any food. Now, when I visit my five-year-old twin grandsons and my son and their daughter, daughter-in-law, and I don't eat certain foods, I don't eat certain times, certain quantities, these five-year-olds are intrigued by my saying, I'm allergic. Grandma's allergic. I don't say, as many people say, oh, I'm on a diet, oh, it doesn't agree with me. I use it. I'm allergic. They're intrigued by this. Grandma, are you allergic to this? Are you allergic to that? What happens if you have some? I say, I get very crabby. I mean, I think people are drawn to somehow understanding what this concept of allergy is. And when I was recently in California at an adult son's um, wedding, and he knows my history and many of his friends do, uh, his new brother-in-law was saying at table to me, 
Well, tell me, tell me well, what you're eating, what you're not eating. Well, what are your allergies? And I was trying to cloak it because I'm rather new to that family. And David, my son, said to me, Mom, give him the whole skinny. He can handle it. People are intrigued by this concept of an allergy of the body apart from the obsession of the mind. So I'm so glad that we're spending this time with it during these days. Um, thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Barbara. Katie G., go ahead. Monica, did you say Katie G.? I sure did. I'm sorry. Like, the phone hung up on me. Anyway, um, <laughs> sorry about that. I don't know. I'm powerless over technology and a recovered uh, compulsive overeater. I guess one of the things I wanted to point out um, that uh, is chronic alcoholics, right? Okay, so let's talk about the word chronic, right? Chronic means an illness that persists for a long time. So if you have a chronic illness, it's like diabetes, right? You're never going to go back to a point where you don't have diabetes anymore. If you have a cold or a viral illness, you might need to be hospitalized. And you might, have, you might be sicker than me ever if I have diabetes. But you're going to recover. And I think that this was, really, this was really important for me as part of my identifying it. Am I chronic or am I somebody who can safely use food in any form at all? You know, and for me, for my food plan, I took that line, these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And for me, I tried for a long time to use my alcoholic foods in different forms. And I know I shared on the other, the other morning, I, you know, used to chew gum. I can't do aspartame. I can't do the lookalikes. Um, but I didn't know that. And how did I find that out? Through alcoholic torture, through chewing $400 worth of gum a month, through drinking bottles and bottles of diet soda. Um, and what happened to me, I think it's also really important, this, this line that says, once having lost their self-confidence, right, so I'm eating, I can't break it, my reliance upon things human, and my problems pile up on me and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So what were my problems? I can't have relationships. I can't show up to jobs, and I can't have friendships, and I hate my family, right, because I'm in the wrong family. But the thing is, I couldn't see the addiction. I couldn't see that at the core, I was eating to solve my problems and because I was so overwhelmed with the problems. And so when I first got abstinent, and I want to echo, again, it was, very, it was very painful for me to physically put down those foods. I definitely went through withdrawal. But I thought when I first got abstinent, I was like, well, first of all, where's my stuff? And God, clean up my life and make my life look like a thin Barbie that everybody else's life looks like. Like, clean up my life. And I should be comfortable. This is Get Comfortable Anonymous. I demand it. But what I found is I had to deal with my addiction. I had to deal with, okay, what are my alcoholic foods? What forms are they in? Am I chronic? Has this been going on for years, or am I going to get better? And that question I answered by, do, by looking at my life and seeing ever since I was a little girl, I would put certain foods into my body, and I would have fire in my legs, and I, it didn't matter who you are. I was going to go after you and your family to get my food, whether I was vomiting in public places or going through your cabinet to steal food, I didn't care. I couldn't control. I was under the phenomenon of craving. And then 
start getting into the steps once I am clean, as soon as I am clean, so that I can have a, a freedom, right? Relief comes from food, putting that food down, but it is only brief. True freedom comes from practicing the willingness to bear discomfort so I can get through the steps and look at my life and then start helping others and be free. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Katie. Paula, go ahead. Star one to unmute, Paula. There you go, and I have started working. <laughs> Thank you. I always like guidance. You know, I, I want to just sit on these and these first two words. Of course. Of course. But the alcoholic, William James, says, it binds you, alcohol, and it blinds you. Food did the same thing. And yet this is the word that used. Of course an alcoholic ought to be freed. And look at the other word, freed, trapped by. I was trapped by until I finally listened. Paula, pressed our one to mute. And finally, it said, from his physical craving for liquor. There was no way, no matter how far I thought I went down, that I could live in the promises. No. That craving for liquor. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before. Now look at the way they put it. They're very clear on their words. Of course, freed before. Before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. Maximum. Oh, you know, you're going to feel good for a while. You know, Bill W. said something very appropriate. Good is the enemy of the best. Oh, that's good enough. I'll just give up that. No, it isn't good enough, Paula. Not for you and more so not for others. How then do you learn to love your neighbor as yourself? Notice the both there. Maximum benefit. I don't want minimum anymore. I don't want so-so. I don't want, well, good enough. No, no. Maximum. I want the maximum benefit. I want to be able to give to the maximum. And if this is what I need to do, and I need to understand what food is and what it does and what it gives, nutrition, imagine. That's what Mr. Webster said. A source of nutrition? What was the matter with that man? That was not the description for me. I had to know this craving, once it is set in motion, there is nothing I can do or no one I would do it for. It is going, and it's taken me along the way. I'll tell you one thing about a tornado. When it hits, it takes everything in its path, everything in its path, your values, your principles, your honesty. Oh, I can have this, and the results are still the same. Oh, this craving takes you, honey. You don't take it. Thank you for allowing me to share. With that, I do pass. Thank you, Paula. And this is Monica, and I'd like to uh, end up here. Um, here we are. We believe and so suggest a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, manifestation and ex existence, reality. This is our reality. And that's what Dr. Silkworth here is trying to get across to us. This is our reality. 
we have an abnormal reaction to certain alcoholic foods that we have. And we will always have it till the day we die. If we ingest an allergic food, it will set off this physical craving for more. And he says that this never occurs in the average temperate drinker. The average normal eater does not have this phenomenon. Never. They can't relate to it. And once having formed a habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, you know, and that's what happens to us, you know. For years and years and years, we keep going out in research and development and trying to, maybe this time, I'll be able to have the allergic food and it won't bring me down that road. I won't go on the roller coaster this time. So Dr. Silkworth here is, this is in the first in a number of paragraphs where he's going to be trying to get across to us the importance that we realize we have an abnormal reaction that sets off a craving that we have no control over once we pick up. And it's so important that we, we grasp this, understand this. And it's not my fault I was made this way. And that's, you know, but we have a solution. And there's a hope here. We have a solution to this. We know there's a way out. And with that, we've reached the end of our time here today. And I'd like to thank everyone who has shared. And we will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. And Kim, could you read a vision for you, please? Thank you, Monica. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past and give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.